Hi, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. Today, you'll be listening to episode six of season four of the Housing News podcast. In today's episode, Cindy Waldron, the vice president of research and analytics at Freddie Mac, joins the Housing News podcast to discuss affordability and the trends Freddie Mac sees in different areas of the country. During the interview, Waldron explains how the nation's lack of housing inventory is affecting low to moderate income borrowers, as well as how COVID-19 will impact home ownership dreams of Americans who are currently struggling financially due to the pandemic. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Now more than ever, homeowners and borrowers of the future need to understand impacts and options during times of financial hardship. Freddie Mac has made home possible for 50 years and is committed to providing assistance and clarity to the housing market. Through All for Home SM efforts, Freddie Mac Single Family is leading the future of housing through insights, education, mortgage, and business solutions. Learn more about resources to help you and the clients you serve at sf.freddiemac.com slash affordable lending. Thank you for listening, and here's the sixth episode of season four of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm excited to jump into today's episode of the Housing News Podcast. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire, and today we are talking with Cindy Waldron, the Vice President of Research and Analytics in the Single Family Client and Community Engagement Division at Freddie Mac. Her responsibilities include driving business solutions for the single family business and its clients by leveraging research, data, and analytics to target and overcome barriers to homeownership. Through partnerships with lenders, nonprofit organizations, national intermediaries, and industry networks, she addresses the issues of homeownership preservation, affordability of housing, housing supply, and access to credit. A veteran of over 20 years in the mortgage industry, Cindy joined Freddie Mac in 1999 and has held leadership roles within the single family model and analytics and affordable lending and access to credit divisions. She holds an MBA in finance and entrepreneurship from the George Washington University and a bachelor's degree in math and business economics from Augsburg University. As you can see, Cindy is the perfect person to speak on our topic today, which is affordability. So welcome to Housing News, Cindy. Thanks, Sarah, for having me. Really appreciate it. We always like to find out a little bit about our industry leaders that we're interviewing. So how did you get into the mortgage industry? Well, you know, I think as uh, most people don't um, say, I want to be in housing when they're, you know, first get out of college. And so it's something that we, I think many of us kind of stumble upon. And so my story is no different um, in the stumbling. So I was uh, working for a financial services company in Minneapolis um, and got engaged. My husband was here in the the D.C. area where um, Freddie Mac is um, located and we were getting married and um, I needed a job. And so um, he took my resume and went to the Freddie Mac job fair and shopped it around. And so, you know, I had a few interviews once um, and flew in and um the rest is kind of history. I, I started out doing, you know, um, in the financial uh, group um, and went into financial research uh, research um, component. And uh, I thought I'd be there for uh, three to maybe three to four years. And I got hooked and I've been, like you said, over 21 years. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, your husband did us all solid. So, you know, thank you to him. for. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. 
Well, let's talk about affordability. Um, first off, you know, how does Freddie Mac track affordability, especially for first-time homebuyers? And, and what was the impetus for really measuring that? Yeah, so this has been a process for us for a few years. Um, in fact, Jaya Day on my team, her and I have uh, kind of thought about this for, you know, probably five, six years and keep building on it. Sort of like, how do we think about affordability and the bar of the future and keep pulling the onion for that. Uh, so affordability, um, we had an affordability um, index, as a lot of people do, and we kept thinking about you know, how do we think about the bar of the future and, and renters in particular? And not all renters are necessarily ready to, um, you know, go into single family, into the affordability, uh, into the um, homeowner space, right? And so um, we really wanted to also think about the different areas that people lived and the different segments that they are. And so really, you know, everybody looks at affordability as this, you know, kind of macro look, but we really want it to deep, uh, go deep dive into local markets um, and really think about the first time home buyer, think about, uh, you know, where, how the local markets, uh, the housing stock of it is, right? And so you may be credit um, ready, but there may not be enough housing for you in these different areas. And what is the, the economic situation? So we're really trying to look at it as in the whole ecosystem of it. Um, so we developed, um, it's kind of uh, just coming out where we've using, we're calling it the first time home buyer affordability index. And it's um, unlike a lot of other affordable indexes, we actually are measuring the credit worthy uh, renters um, we're using a credit um, information, we're using closing data, um, we're using different data sources um, so that we can better understand is a credit worthy renter if they have income greater than or equal to the income earned by first time home buyers who recently purchased a home using a mortgage, then that renter can afford a house in the area. So our index is based on the area median income um, of the given locality which allows us to specifically investigate local affordability of the low to moderate income credit worthy borrower, but not just the low income, but we can look at affordability in general. Um, we can also look at affordability by, um, for equality reasons, like if we wanted to look into sort of African American or Hispanic, so what is the population there? What is their income and how are they comparing to their cohort, right? So, um, this we're really excited about this to be able to help drive and, and help source and think about affordability um, for the first time home buyer and how it looks um, in geographically and into different certain target markets. I think that's um, more relevant now than ever when you think about that millennial wave of people coming up. Um, you know, they're they're just hitting their stride as far as their age for typical home buying. Right, that stage in their life. So, so really interesting to look at creditworthy renters and see what that looks like. I'll, I'll be especially interested to see that as as we work through COVID, uh, because we do see, at least from from the reporting we're doing, that that definitely it is it is impacting renters much more than homeowners, right? And we don't have this mm -hmm. huge amount of people in forbearance, but you do have a, a ton of people who are having trouble making their rent, and so you wonder what that effect will be on homeownership. Yes, we we are seeing it hitting a, a lot of the renters, but we are also seeing um, that it 
it's actually stimulating some of these um, millennials so that um, you know we had like the first time home buyers a lot of uh, a lot of them were staying in place to their house right because they um, the the interest rates were low and they didn't want to move to kind of the, the move up house right but during COVID-19 we're actually seeing some of those move to the to the next house because they want you know they want additional space they're having to work on online with their children so and you know millennials are getting to be 40 right and so a lot of them are having children i think a lot of us you know um i'm 50 so i you know i you know others don't seem to age as much and they always seem you know like 20s but you know they are getting to the point where their their kids are at a certain age and so they are looking to to move up and some of the renters to get a house because they're wanting more space. Really interesting. Yeah. You know, one of the keys to um, affordability is housing inventory, right? I mean, that when, when you have low inventory, you tend to drive up prices. So we know that housing inventory has been short in short supply for the last several years. So how is it particularly scarce for low to moderate income borrowers? That, that's a great question. And let me kind of chunk it up a little bit for first thinking about the new housing supply, and then thinking about our current housing supply. So <clears throat> our new housing supply, um, I have, if you look at sort of uh, a timeline from like, you know, 19 or 1968 to even 2019, we've seen from 2018 to uh, current, we're actually seeing really low levels of, of new housing starts. Um, and a lot of the housing starts have been at the higher level because it's more, um, you know, it's it's harder for builders to make money on the lower, um, the, the, the LMI housing, right? And so that's been more of a challenge to get new housing into that, into that space. So we're only actually seeing, you know, two years, 1982 and 1991, that had um, the same like lower levels as we have from 2008 to 2019. So we're having a huge issue with the the new housing starting, and you know we've already seen in 2019 where the inventory over housing household ratio has been in an all time low. So that's how we've kind of gone into pre like before COVID 19, um, and then I'll kind of talk about what COVID 19 did, but let me go now to say, well, what was our housing stock look like, our aging housing stock? So our team um, took uh, uh, first American tax uh, record data from 2018. It was uh, 72 million single family residents. And we, um, we looked to see what was the share of aging housing stock. And more than half of them were constructed prior to 1979. Um, so this is that was shocking and then we plotted it in the united states and so where we're seeing a lot of the housing the aging housing stock is when you think about the the northeast but kind of on the canadian side right so you have like indiana ohio west virginia pennsylvania new york um, all the way up through maine and then um, another uh, bigger area that we see all of those all those states have predominantly like 60 to 80% of the aging housing stock um, before 1979. 
And then Ohio is another state that has um, very older as, as Nebraska, right? And then kind of interesting, the north part of um, like Montana and some areas in California. So we do see more in the south that we're not seeing as much of the aging housing stock. But again, in out east, we do see a lot of aging. So, so now, now, do we not only have kind of a shortage of the new supply, we're actually seeing a lot of aging housing uh, uh, shortage or a lot of aging housing. So then that's kind of setting the stage as what we came into, you know, into 2020. And like I said, a lot of the housing was, you know, not as much for LMI. And as I just mentioned before, given low rates, many people were staying in their starter homes and, and not upgrading. Um, and others, we saw a big trend in um, people wanting to age in their house, right? And so that wasn't freeing up housing supply too. So all of this was really adding to a, a really, um, one of the major issues for affordability is the supply of housing. Then came COVID. <laughs> and so it was an, a, another, uh, to be honest, another kind of hit towards the uh, supply of housing. Uh, we, we did see the spring, the spring housing sales delay into summer and fall. Uh, so we did see a lot of the, the spring sales shift. So, so that was kind of uh, good. Uh, we also had, um, uh, you know, we also saw that um, the housing supply, uh, so there's continuing uh, a shortage um, and the, the builders can't build fast enough. I, there's a lot of, even with people were wanting to do remodeling, right? And so you see a lot of people with builders that they couldn't get builders to come or people to help remodel for months. You know, there, there's, there's a huge backlog of that. Um, so based on this, um, even before we started to see COVID-19 hit, my team realized that one of the major barriers was this housing supply. And so we have a team on, on mine called Innovation in Housing. And one of the things that we focus on is housing supply. And how do we, well, we're not builders, what are some of the things that we can do to help? And so we launched really, um, as I said, I'm really big into like each community is different and you have to help um, each of them in, in different ways. So we launched like a five community-based initiative to really kind of understand some of the issues within those communities and then um, test some uh, things to help housing supply um, using our research and insights um, from my team. And then really um, what Freddie does well is we standardize and we scale. And so that's what kind of our next step is, is really, you know, let's, let's see, let's work out the kings, let's standardize and, and start scaling some of those. So we've really promoted a lot of renovation products. As I mentioned to you before, there is a lot of aging housing stock and we can, we can help with that. We have a renovation product. Um, we are working with that to say, you know, um, not everybody is a general contractor. Can we bring in nonprofits to help um, help with that um, process, right? We found out in like Omaha is one of our um, areas and they didn't have a lot of uh, developers for low to moderate income. And so we actually have put together this develop the developer program. And so we're working with that. We put scholarships in place for, you know, minority. And in this case, we had four for minority women, right? And so we're working on how are things that we can do. 
Uh, we also are working on some shared equity programs to help revitalize different neighborhoods to make um, to make them more affordable for the LMI community. So um, all of this is, I know it's a, it's a long response, but we're using our research and insights to, to really uh, try to impact communities and make data-driven decisions to help the, um, the underserved and to, as I mentioned, the housing supply is one of the uh, a critical issue. No, I appreciate that deep dive because um, these are, these are uh, difficult issues. So I think, you know, the talking about aging housing stock, I think is so important, you know, so I live in Texas and basically, you know, there's not a lot of aging stock. I mean, there's some, but we just keep spreading out. It's like, oh, we need some more, you know, we need some more housing. Great. We, we've got all this cheap land or, you know, depending on where it is, but, you know, we just keep spreading. Um, but, you know, obviously lots of places don't have that um, same dynamic. And, and also just, you know, the people who are stuck in, in the, in the middle, not, not spreading out are the ones who have that aging stock. And how are they supposed to, if they're already having affordability issues, how are they supposed to not only buy that, but then be able to renovate. So interesting about your renovation product or products. That's awesome. Um, what are some of the areas that are most affordable right now? Like, you know, and, and do those areas have things that attract home buyers, like jobs and schools? I mean, traditionally you think, ah, oh, here's a really, you know, cheap place to live. I could really afford a great house. Where am I going to work? Um, how, you know, what does it look like to live in this, you know, inexpensive area? So, so what are some of those areas right now that are most affordable? So that's a great question because, um, as you mentioned, where you live really determines like where your kids go to school, you know, the different networks that you have, you know, the, the taxes that you pay, infrastructure, sort of the stability of your family. So people are looking at those when, when they move and where they have affordability. And even pre-COVID, we saw a shift from some of these high cost areas to areas that are affordable, <clears throat> but have all these, these different components, right? And even in COVID-19, we see a lot of that's actually even, um, we see a larger shift of that, right? So we see in the news where a lot of people from New York City are moving to different areas. Uh, sometimes it's as close as even like Pennsylvania, where we see pockets of affordability, right? And so we have um, affordability there. Where we see in our affordability index, where a lot of it is um, not too surprisingly in the Midwest and in the South for affordability for all. So the Northeast um, is not as affordable. Um, and then like the, the, the West Coast, and, and that's not too surprising. Those are where the high cost areas are. But what was really interesting is when we did this affordability index, which is why I was so passionate about having it based on like LMI, to see that um, it actually shrinks affordability um, and in particular in the South. And so you'll see where um, in the, when you look at affordability for all, the South actually seems very affordable. But when you actually consider sort of income and housing, you see that it's not as affordable in, in areas within the South. That's so interesting to me. I, I, I wouldn't have known that. So that's interesting. You know, let's talk about some of the characteristics of a credit worthy renter, because that's one of the things that you guys measure to see, you know, what affordability looks like. So you know, what are some of those characteristics of, of that renter who's going to be able to buy a home in the short term? What do you see? Yeah, so, so that's, I get a question about that a lot. And so I think it's more than just one component, but let's, uh, you know, everybody kind of knows about the FICO score and making sure that uh, you have a strong FICO score. Um, there's ability to pay current expenses. You know, there's uh, reserves so that you have like a rainy day fund, right? 
Um, a lot of, uh, in particular, <clears throat> millennials and people who live in high cost areas don't have as much uh, down payment. So there's, you know, um, but a lot of it is awareness too. So Freddie Mac has um, a lower down payment uh, products. One is Home Possible, which is um, linked to income. So it would be 80% AMI or less for borrowers. But we saw the need in particular for high cost areas um, where I mentioned in the East and West Coast in particular where um, it's really expensive and having more than a 3% down payment is challenging. So we um, put we have a home one and that's not based on income. And so um, I think a lot of uh, it's an awareness that there's these products out there. And then I just cannot stress enough financial education. This is uh, one of the things that I think is the biggest characteristic that um, a, a new you know, first time home buyer, um, you know, what they should be focusing on. And uh, we have, um, um, and it's free, uh, Credit Smart, which is our credit, uh, our financial cr uh, criteria. Um, we have, sorry, it's Home Buyer U, and we have a financial component to it. So this is free, and it, you know, we partner with a lot of our counseling agencies and realtors to promote Credit Smart. The curriculum is uh, an interactive platform that offers videos, knowledge checks, and you know, self-paced um, uh, trackers uh, for the users. Um, we expand the, the focus of these key topics to prepare customer consumers or home buyer um, for the process, develop their lifelong money management skills. You know, we've even used some of this within like junior achievements because we believe that it's not just about when you're wanting to have a home, but this credit smart curriculum is really, you know, we're, we, um, we're, we're going in an overhaul and we really think it should be, we had it from 16 to 116. So we're targeting all different life uh, times where you have, you know, maybe it's about making decisions about college. Maybe it's about when you get a first home or marriage or different things like that. So that, and even Credit Smart talks for renters, right? So a lot of renters don't realize you should have, you know, renter insurance, right? So it gives you kind of checklists on how to be better prepared. Um, for different financial um, times in your life. And so, again, I, I can't stress enough about, you know, if you have the discipline and, and keep understanding, you know, how is it to save so that when I, you know, it's not just about getting into the house, but it's having a sustainable homeowner throughout their life. Super interesting point. Um, you know, let, when we talk about creditworthy renters, as I said in in the intro, you know, there's some different things going on this year. So what are some of the factors that might affect their ability to buy, you know, as they've been affected by COVID? What are you seeing there? What do you anticipate seeing? Yeah, so first of all, thinking about the um, the economics of how, um, how has COVID-19 um, affected us? So our chief economist um, at Freddie Mac um, has predicted about the 30-year fixed mortgage will be around 3% in 2021. So that's good news uh, for uh, affordability. So these low rates will keep uh, monthly payments down. Um, house price uh, growth, um, which was around 5 to 6% here in, in 2020. So that has been more challenging, because, um, and that's been spurred mainly because of the demand um, for housing. And so COVID-19 has added a lot of people wanting more space, wanting to go into the country. You know, we're, <clears throat> we're all working at home. We're having the kids at home. 
So we're all wanting more space. That's adding a demand. So that's adding pressure towards affordability and even the housing stock, as we said. Um, in 2021, we expect the rate for house price uh, growth to be 2.6. So that will um, that should help a little bit um, that it's not growing as fast as the five to six percent. Uh, that said, again, the housing shortage is still going to be very challenging. Um, in COVID-19, building new housing is, is going to be hard. And then even, um, even though we're trying to, to do renovation to a lot of these housing, there's still, you know, we need more people to do the building and we need these, you know, skilled workers. Um, and we also know uh, COVID-19 has especially hit communities of color. Um, and I think that's important to put into the context um, as, you know, how that's impacting them. Um, and so we're really focused on sustainable home ownership as, as I keep telling you about that. And so what we're, we had a Help Starts Here program so that in particular for, for those who were hit by COVID-19, so they understand you know, their options and forbearance. And you know, we've done a lot of my team in housing out, um, outreach, it's done a lot of seminars and, and really worked on where do we see like if there's delinquencies, do they know that they can go into forbearance and what are their options? And so that has been one of the biggest drivers um, that we've been able to, to focus on recently is how do we get sustainable homeowners? Because it's really hard once they lose a house to get them back in. And so we focused mainly on that. But um, kind of surprisingly, and I think it's a lot of because people are at um, in their house a lot, that we are still seeing the demand for first-time home buyers. Yeah, so, you know, talking about sustainable homeownership, what are some of the most important factors in building in that resiliency in homeowners? Like you said, it, it's easier to keep them in their home than if they lose their home to get them back in. I mean, you know, the, the economic impacts on someone who loses their home to foreclosure, it, it could just be lifelong. So, so what are some of the factors in building resilient homeowners? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we're doing the, the Help Starts Here program um, and, and having that campaign. A lot of the other things that we're doing, <clears throat> I'll say like in, in innovation in housing, um, we're having different alternatives for them. So part of it is having the knowledge that they can go into um, uh, you know, um, some of these programs that we're putting together. Um, others are if they're having long-term um, um, issues, um, staying in their home, we're trying to think of ways through nonprofits and having um, community, like working on community land trust, right? So that way that even if they, um, the, the nonprofit will purchase the home and then will um, sell it back to the borrower based on their income, and that way they can still have um, grow equity or grow you know, wealth um, for the family. So we're kind of looking at a different in parallel, like, you know, is this really impacting and how can we work with nonprofits and work with our partners to to better serve that community all the way up to maybe they just need a short term solution and working with like our servicing uh, units and, and going out there and using our nonprofits um, arm in our network to get that out to the to the individuals. What about, you know, we know that there's a large gap in black homeownership. You know, you touched on this, that COVID has disproportionately um, affected some communities more than others. Even before COVID there, though, we saw that that gap uh, between black and white homeownership. So what are some of the most impactful ways to increase black homeownership? 
I really think the industry needs to have more of a holistic approach on um, African American home ownership. Um, it's not a it's not a short term solution. We need to really think kind of long term and thinking about home in a sustainable way. So again, it's not just about getting people into the home. It's about the sustainability. And so um, one of the issues that we know is African Americans have 10 cents to the dollar in wealth. So they can't draw upon their family as often whites can, right? So there's multiple challenges with that. So one is they don't have rainy day funds, like oftentimes their counterparts in white. So <clears throat> there's challenges for that. So that's why it's really important for financial education in particular in the African-American community. Um, there's also the down payment. If you only have 10 cents to the dollar, we've noticed that why a lot of whites can use, you know, parental money or they can use money that they've had from another house. African-Americans can't do that as much. And so that's also this awareness campaign that I said that there's, you only need to have 3% down. So it's having people understand that still today, a lot of people think they need 20% down instead of the 3%. So there's, there's work on that. And then on the down payment, um, we're actually working on having a national down payment database that will be a single source for the entire industry. Um, so what we do well is we'll have, you know, like um, kind of standardize. Um, so guidelines will be maintained by the providers through a standard interface. Uh, Users such as lenders, doc providers, loan origination systems will be available through APIs for integration and customer solutions. So this is going to be a multi-year effort um, with coordination with the MBA, um, FHFA, and, and other stakeholders. And so we're hoping to get sort of a, a minimum viable product out in 2021. And this really is going to be um, groundbreaking to think about how we can utilize these down payment uh, um, uh, products and to be able to help with, you know, getting African Americans into homes, because that's what that is a big barrier to is the, the down payment. Um, and again, utilizing low down payment products is huge. I think education, again, a lot of uh, African Americans are first time uh, generation homeowners. So they can't draw on their family, like on their parents to say, well, what did you guys do? And how did you, you know, what happened here? And a lot of the um, African-Americans through the Great Recession lost their house. And so it's also the stigma for African-Americans that it's, that's kind of scary. Like, you know, my parents lost it. How do I make sure that that doesn't happen to me? So we're doing a lot of work through, um, through education. We work with a lot of the, the historic black colleges and universities. Um, to to better educate them, to get them into different programs. So we work a lot with the youth to make sure that they're getting ready too. So you, I think you have to look at it again in a holistic manner, um, not just about, okay, who's ready right now, but work on the pipeline, get them, you know, get them into homes and get them into sustainable homes. And so I think that um, if you think about it as a long-term game, that's how we're going to get um, to, to reduce the homeownership gap. Yeah, I love that idea about the, you know, looking at this long term and what we can do. You know, we're almost out of time here, but I did want to ask you one last question. You know, as you work on increasing affordability, what do you see in the current landscape that you're optimistic about? I'm really optimistic about some of the movements that I've seen as far as, 
you know, um, the equality. I think people are really paying attention to, you know, the, the homeownership gaps. Um, I'm really encouraged. Uh, I'm, I'm a quant in nature. And so I'm excited about the data that we didn't have even 10 years ago. And I think um, I'm a huge believer in data-driven decisions instead of just uh, like the hearsay of it. So we know better, not just throwing out the net, but we know exactly where the fish are to, to get them, right? And so we know how to better source mortgage-ready individuals. We know where people who may not have as, a, as good of a credit score, how do we think about targeting them to build their, um, build their uh, credit score? Um, having programs to think about, you know, how do we build wealth and have them understand here's the different ways that we can, so African Americans, we can close the wealth gap too. So I really think that it's about having better tools and really thinking holistically instead of just getting people into the home. We're really spreading out and saying, how do we think about somebody who's in grade school are we are we teaching them to have a bank account are we teaching them to be you know um, thoughtful about like what you know the colleges and you know how do we think about it as a life cycle versus just thinking about getting people into into homes so i'm very encouraged by some of the things i think we better understand the challenges and you know i feel like for ourselves we keep thinking about where is you know, it's not just about affordable housing. It's not just about some of the regulatory thing. It's really about what are the barriers to home ownership and solving for those. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insight on these incredibly important topics. Really enjoyed the conversation and, and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out HousingWire's latest podcast, The Daily Download, which is a daily wrap of HousingWire's hottest stories now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you next week.